Welcome, everyone, to FF Plus, your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. I'm your host, Aaron White, and I have three new films to share with you today. The first is Untold Operation Flagrant Foul from Netflix, the next in their second series of the Untold sports documentaries. It features sit-down interviews with Tim Donahue, Tommy Martino, Jimmy the Sheep Batista, FBI agent Phil Scala, Donahue's lawyer John Lauro, Donahue's ex-wife, Kim Strupp Donahue, and more. And it is directed by David Terry Fine. What's it about? In the summer of 2007, news broke that an NBA referee was being investigated for gambling on his own games, igniting a media storm and sending the NBA, FBI, and sports fans into crisis. That referee was Tim Donahue, and the story didn't just start and end with him, but wound its way from the small-town bookies of the Philadelphia suburbs to lining the pockets of the notorious New York crime families and worldwide sports gambling underworld. Now, if you are not much of a sports fan, I don't know how much awareness you would even have of this event taking place. I feel like it was a flash in the pan that it came and went. It was a news item, and then it sort of disappeared pretty quickly. And I'll mention a little bit about that later and maybe why that is. But as a documentary, this hits that sweet spot for me. For most sports documentaries of a little over an hour, it's in and out, and it is telling the story as best it possibly can. I think that for a film that doesn't feature the cooperation of the NBA itself, it does a pretty decent job of giving us all of the facts. What is most interesting about this documentary is probably that you have multiple people all saying, I'm telling the truth, but their stories are different in several distinct ways. So by that token, it is almost like the opposite of Untold, the girlfriend who didn't exist, the story of Mante Teo, where you have two separate interviews with both himself and the person who catfished him, and they essentially are corroborating every particular detail of that entire relationship that they had. And so you know the facts are correct, at least as best they can be from someone's integrity perspective. But this, we just don't know uh, who's telling the truth, who's not, what the real story is. It is very interesting. It starts by giving us some background into Tim Donahue, of course, got to tell us how he became an NBA referee, what that was like for him. It gives us a little bit of background on the gambling scene in Philadelphia and a group called The Animals. It teaches us how bookies worked and made money, gives us some of the lingo that was involved in the betting that happened, and kind of explores a little bit about how it was a very addicting operation and how Tim got involved in this. Once Tim is active as an NBA referee and able to kind of take this information that he has, this inside information, he is able to share this with outside sources. He tells them about particular player tendencies, particular coach tendencies, things that are 
not necessarily put out in the media, but that he expects could influence games. And one of the most really brutally telling things is he talks about how NBA referees would have meetings and go over the rule books and they would call out specific rules that they were going to focus on in any given game, even very player specific, like having an agreement that we're not going to allow this player to do this thing on this night. So lots of questions were raised by me with regard to that and how the NBA ultimately handled this case once it came out into the open. But, you know, hearing Tim talk about these things was pretty shocking, honestly. It's stuff that maybe deep down, if you're a fan of sports, you kind of believe is always right there under the surface as a possibility that you that you don't want it to be true. And this sort of confirms that, you know, referees are human beings and bias is part of sports. You're always going to have to deal with that. And sometimes things like this happen where Tim essentially begins to bet on the games. There's a lot of questions that start to be raised. Basically, the second half of this documentary as his fall is coming and he is becoming investigated by the FBI. The title of the documentary, Operation Flagrant Foul, is actually pulled from the name of the FBI investigation into this. But what we learn is that some of these people that he was making a lot of money for, seemingly a lot more money than he was actually making for himself, he was actually connected indirectly, unknowingly, according to him, to the Gambino crime family, who was connected to John Gotti. So this kind of got really big, even though his piece of the puzzle was pretty small by contrast, according to the information we have. He claims that he didn't know anything about this mob stuff going on. The FBI has records that don't prove that he did, but prove that the mob through their channels were able to make millions and millions and millions of dollars off of the information that he was providing others. So it's really intriguing. And then it sort of starts to wrap up by also taking a look at the NBA's complicity in influencing the outcomes of the sport. And then the fallout uh, for all of the parties once the news of the scandal leaked to the press. There's all sorts of denials throughout this and lack of comment comments from the NBA. Little blurbs will flash on the screen, but it'll be like, NBA says this, this, and this. In fact, the film actually starts with a text that reads, NBA official statement. Tim Donahue is a convicted felon. There is no basis to revisit any of this now. <laughs> they clearly don't want this brought to life. David Stern is in the crosshairs a bit of this documentary for some of his decision making and the way that he handled things. And it's certainly bringing up the possibility and the question of did the NBA know this or was Tim just taking advantage of something that everybody else kind of quietly agreed was a thing and he just got caught? It's an intriguing documentary. Really enjoyed it. And it has one of the great kind of questionable final shots that a documentary can do. Tim is answering a question where he answered it one time earlier in the documentary and gave sort of a non-answer. And then they ask him again. They kind of revisit this and they, they bring it up and they're like, hey, you know, we asked you this question and this is what you said. Would, are you, is that the right answer? Do you want to change it? 
This time he gives a definitive answer and then the camera lingers on him. And I love this in documentaries because you get a sense of a person's inner brain kind of processing information in that moment. And you just see his eyes darting around the room and sort of looking down at times as the camera hovers on him. And it really left me wondering, what is the truth? Like, I don't know. I learned a little bit about how this all went down and the wide reaching, the different players that were involved in it. But ultimately, I didn't come away from this documentary feeling like I know the truth. And I think that's the point because nobody, no one does. We don't know the truth. And it's just, it's, it's wild to me. I mean, the punishment, did it fit the crime? There's lots of questions regarding that as well. Interesting situation. Definitely recommend this for any fans of the NBA, for any sports fans, for anybody, maybe even if you just like true crime that isn't of the murder sort, it's basically that in a lot of ways. This will be streaming on Netflix on August 30th. This is the third of the new four movie package of untold documentaries. So yeah, I think, you know, it's it's definitely my second favorite of the three behind the girlfriend who didn't exist. I like it better than the story of and one. And I was pleased that I watched it and got to learn a little bit about this uh, historical event. Next up is Into the Deep from Lionsgate. It stars Ella Ray Smith, Jessica Alexander, and Matthew Daddario. It is directed by Kate Cox and written by David Benton. What's it about? A young woman desperate for an escape meets a mysterious and attractive stranger who promises a romantic trip. But when a third party shows up, what follows is deceit, mistrust, and violence. Not gonna lie. I saw that this was sold in press release emails as a single location thriller on a boat. Check. Love that. Being my navy guy that i am it was about a guy and two girls and was supposed to feature some sexual antics and you know interesting power dynamics between the three of them check that sounds really cool and it has that little tagline from the producers or the team that brought you 47 meters down which is also something that they promoted when they put out that movie fall that recently came out that same production team not directors not actors so you know keep your expectations in check but i did like fall and so i thought okay this seems like another low budget thriller that could be you know entertaining in the same way that fall was we'll give it a shot well that's not how i felt about it i did not like this movie quite a bit it Starts off with this character named Jess, and we immediately begin with this traumatic backstory of how Jess is in a car crash, her mom dies, and now we fast forward to a decade later, she's not wanting her dad to move on in a relationship, she's still harboring this loss of her mother, and it is affecting her deeply. We conveniently set up a character who doesn't like being in the water and isn't much of a swimmer and then we put her in this situation per the plot where she is going to immediately have to face the water on the anniversary of her mom drowning so that becomes a big dramatic point in the film all of this is rapid fire 
given to us. It's not set up in a way that is interesting or deep. It feels like a screenwriter just checking off boxes, trying to make sure, oh, did that plot point get mentioned? Yep, there's this line of dialogue. We're good. Next. It just doesn't feel like a story that has a lot of depth to it, pun intended, when we're talking about being stuck out in the ocean, I guess. So it feels very surface level at every turn. Jess bumps into this American tourist named Ben, who she invites to a bonfire that night. And within 24 hours, she has on his sailboat and stuck out, or yacht, I guess it is, sailboat, yacht. It's got an engine. She's stuck out in the ocean with him, and the shit is hitting the fan. So I really struggled a lot with the decision-making that took place in this. I understand being swept away by a mysterious stranger is a very typical plot point in a lot of films and a lot of thrillers kind of rely on this sort of dumb choices that characters make. But there are points in this multiple times where I feel like Jess could have gotten herself out of the situation and just continued to allow it to become the more dangerous one that it ultimately does. When a second girl becomes involved, it does slightly get interesting and mysterious in the second act. There are some questions about who really is whom and what is going on. How did this girl get out here and why is she suddenly on the boat with them? There's one or two brief scenes of sexy time, mainly one actual sexual scene. It's not graphic at all, and it's definitely not artistically inspired, and it was fine. I guess it raised my pulse for a couple of seconds, but I was expecting way more, and honestly, I kind of felt cheated. I felt like this is the kind of movie that I wanted to be an old-school 80s and 90s erotic thriller, the likes of which I would see on Cinemax or HBO at 10 o'clock at night. And it wasn't that. It doesn't go that hard. It's so, so basic and kind of boring when it comes to both the thrills and the sexiness of it. And it just felt like it was setting itself to be something much more akin to that. The plot contrivances, the completely illogical choices. Characters don't act like normal people. They just ignore the wild, random situation that they're all in, in ways that was baffling to me. So I didn't really care about anyone in this movie. And because of that, it was a real waste of time. It ultimately, it opts for a completely predictable route. So there wasn't anything surprising. The final act is disappointing. The acting is incredibly uneven. There were moments for each of the three primary actors where I thought they were okay. Like, hey, she did fine in this scene. Or he seems like this is, this is a pretty good scene for him. But most of the time, they all three come off to me as very amateurish, especially the girls. I felt like, both female actresses in this are way overreacting. And again, if the movie had leaned into that and it really wanted to embrace its B-movie, schlocky nastiness, then 
this could have been enjoyable, but because it tries to tiptoe that line of sensitively staying sanitary in a way, like it just doesn't get dirty enough to warrant the interest of us as an audience. And I was just very deeply disappointed by it, I guess. I I mean, I didn't really have expectations going into it. So maybe I wasn't that disappointed. I was just indifferent. I was just indifferent. Into the Deep will be in select theaters and on digital and on demand on August the 26th, should you desire to check it out. But my recommendation is a hard no. This is definitely one I would suggest that you skip. Last but not least, we have 3,000 Years of Longing from Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer and United Artists, starring Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton, directed, written by George Miller, co-written by Augusta Gore. It's an adaptation of the short story The Jinn in the Nightingale's Eye by A.S. Byatt. What's it about? A scholar content with life encounters a jinn who offers her three wishes in exchange for his freedom. Their conversation in a hotel room in Istanbul leads to consequences neither would have expected. Now, if I'm not mistaken, this is George Miller's first film since Mad Max Fury Road. So there will be a bit of excitement about that and him returning to Hollywood. He's got two phenomenal actors here in this film to carry it. Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton. They are both wonderful and everything they do for the most part. The movie begins with Alethea, that is Tilda Swinton's character. Interestingly, the Greek root of the name Alethea is truth, or it's related to verity, and that comes into play quite a bit in this. What is truth? Kind of is an overarching question, and they speak Greek to each other at times. But we start with her character on an overseas trip for a narratology conference and i didn't know what that word was immediately looked it up once the movie was over this is a real thing apparently narratology is the study of narrative and narrative structure and the ways that these affect human perception which makes sense given the story that we're about to get eventually she's stumbling down into town looking in shops she comes across a bottle she Accidentally breaks it open and boom, the Jin, played by Idris Elba, pops out. She starts off by refusing to make any wishes and instead asking him to tell her about his life and why he feels the way he it, he does about things, why he's been in the bottle so long, etc. And that launches us into a big portion of the film, which is essentially him recounting tales of the past and these experiences that he had over thousands and thousands of years. These stories offer up Miller an opportunity to get a little bit fantastical. So all of the dialogue and conversation between the Jin and Alethea takes place in this hotel room. I mean, it's literally just her in a white robe for the most of the movie and him sitting on the bed or standing beside her he's gigantic and talking that's it but when he's recounting these stories we get these mythological stories mixed with historical events at times and 
that's when the film does do some interesting things with regards to its cinematography, its CGI, or I guess its visual effects, really. They look great at times. There are some beautiful, beautiful moments here. But there's also just some really goofy-looking stuff in the movie. The stories I found to be hit and miss. Many of them, I think, are intended to be pretty deep and meditative. They're supposed to lend to this exploration of loneliness and longing and love, just like the title of the movie. That's what this is all about, that there's these two characters who have experienced these same feelings that are now being brought together. That came across to me on a very intellectual level, but the way in which the stories were shown to us I never felt like they had that magic. They never evoked any of these strong sensations and emotions in me. And so I found the film to be honestly rarely interesting and emotionally ineffective. As you know, this is feeling film. I care about feeling. And if you don't make me feel, then I'm like, what's the point? Because if you didn't accomplish your main goal. For a story about storytelling, I think it is a frustratingly and honestly ironic narrative mess. It's just too all over the place, and it's too boring. I also had some issues at times with what I feel are maybe some inconsistencies in the application of the Jin's magic. Most of the time, he would have to actively grant a wish. So, for example, he might provide books to someone because they wished for infinite knowledge. And then they would have to read the books in order to gain the knowledge. But then at other times, he would just snap his fingers and someone would be something or something would happen. And that kind of inconsistency was a little bit of an annoyance because it was plot specific. Like, if you could just snap your fingers and make things happen, why would you go through the trouble of doing it this harder way? So there's a level of how magical is he versus how bound to human interaction is he that I don't feel like I had a good grasp on. There are also times that someone would casually make a wish and he would just not do it. He would even get mad at times. Like he'd be like, no, no, don't say that. But it was already said and everything historically that we know in stories about jinns would tell our genies in a bottle would tell us like, once you've said the thing, like you made the wish. So if somebody makes the wish, He was just making a decision not to grant it and like, oh, we're just not going to count that one. It felt very made up as it goes to me with regards to how the genies or the Jin's application of his magic occurred. One other big kind of underlying aspect of this film is there's an interesting attempt to marry the supernatural idea of a genie or Jin with modern scientific world. How... It looks at how the place of magic has changed since ancient times and how that's affected by electronics and technology. And it's a very strange way that this is played out. I didn't think it was very meaningful. There are some good things here. The performances, again, they're great. The dialogue and narration is nice because we get to hear both of them and they have lovely voices to listen to. And I think that they both do great physical acting as well, depicting people who are lonely 
and I wanted it to impact me and I wanted to care about the relationship. I wish that I could have. Like I said about the imagery, at times it's beautiful and fantastical and just wonderful to gaze at, kind of lose yourself in this beautiful vapor effect of the Jin coming into form. It looked really cool when that would happen. It was just full of robust and gorgeous color. So I loved that. Overall, though, I just wasn't ever drawn into this tale of love. It never made me yearn for a resolution for the characters. I felt like it was aimless. And it was unsatisfying in how the wishes were or were not used. I can't spoil for you exactly what happens with those. I do think it's likely that some will connect with this. It's very somber and wacky. It's just on its own wavelength. And some people will be moved by that, just not me. So I'm predicting a pretty darn divisive outcome for this film. This will be in theaters on August the 26th, but I'm not recommending it. I wouldn't say this is worth your time. If you're going to check it out, I would say wait for it to come streaming somewhere so that you're not spending money or going out of your way to go sit in the theater to watch this. I just don't think that it's a very good movie. I think it has good ideas. I think it has good artists involved, but does not come together to be something that is satisfying enough for me to recommend it over any of the other dozens of things you could watch that are new or hundreds of things that you could rewatch or check out for the first time at home. It's just not good enough to warrant your time, in my opinion. Real quick reminder that we do have a code to use on letterbox.com if you would like 20% off of a pro or patron upgrade. You can use the code FEELINFILM, that's F-E-E-L-I-N-F-I-L-M, to get that discount. So go ahead and pop that in the next time that you are doing a renewal or upgrading for the first time. I highly recommend it. Big fan of Letterboxd, big user. You can find me there at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. Would love to connect, read your reviews, have you share your thoughts on mine. You can also find me at that same username on Twitter and on Facebook, pretty much all over the internet, actually. And would love to have you come join the Feelin' Film Facebook discussion group. There's links to that in the show notes. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star review and some kind words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Basically, anywhere that you listen to your podcast and can, we would love a positive review. It helps us out, helps bring more people to the show, and that's always a cool thing for us. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling film. Thank you.